Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, the interplay of nature and nurture when it comes to mental health. In many cases, we think probably thousands of mutations. And in fact, you and I are carrying a lot of those mutations, but we probably don't have enough, plus the environmental factors that have caused us to have a mental illness. Plus, finding ways to counter sexual violence. When, as a community, we are intentional about talking about sexual assault relationship violence, we then create a culture where survivors and victims can feel safer. And how vascular disease can lead to a variety of additional health problems. The most common vascular disease that we see are problems with narrowing of the blood vessels as they lead to the circulation in the legs most commonly. All that and a selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we explore the keys to stopping sexual violence on our campuses and beyond. Plus, we'll learn about the importance of screening for vascular disease, an often silent killer. But first, more about the genes behind psychiatric disorders and new secrets to treatment that they may hold. The debate has been going on for decades. What are the roles of nature versus nurture? Or do your genes or your environment determine your illness? This is especially true for diseases that we call neuropsychiatric. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Stephen Glatt. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Glatt. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about all of this stuff because it's, it's very exciting, and I know there have been a lot of new breakthroughs in this field of neuropsychiatric disorders. Help us understand what's going on right now. Things are moving so fast. It's unbelievable. I've been in the field for 15 years, and I'm really just seeing exponential growth. And the most exciting thing is that we've known for decades that these disorders run in families and that that's because of shared genes between family members. Now, within the last 10 years, we've really got a handle on which specific sequences in the human genome actually allow for that passage from parents to their children of the risk for mental disorders, more dis- more for some disorders than others, like schizophrenia, very heavily studied. Other disorders are less studied. So give me some examples of ones that we know right now are really genetically predestined. Uh, In other words, people are totally, it's, it's totally a function of their genes. So there's nothing in the realm of psychiatry like that. There are certain, there are many, many what we call Mendelian disorders or disorders that are caused by a single gene that you've inherited. Early onset breast cancer, for example, early right. onset Alzheimer's disease. Those are caused by one gene and when you have it, you will get sick. For psychiatric disorders, it's more complicated. It's more like you have to inherit lots and lots of genes that each have an incremental effect on your overall susceptibility. But the genes just aren't enough either. You also need some environmental factors in combination with those genes to determine your overall risk level. So it really isn't a single story. I mean, it's not like you have the gene and you get it. That's right. It's definitely not a one-to-one ratio at all. That's correct. And it's not one single gene. No. It's in many cases we think probably thousands of mutations. And in fact, you and I are carrying a lot of those mutations, but we probably don't have enough plus the environmental factors that have caused us to have a mental illness. So this whole notion of when they talk about predisposition, the genes predispose you, that's like saying the ground is laid, mm-hmm. but something has to, you know, the, there has to be rain on the soil for the seeds to, 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 to sprout. That's right. Yeah. So the genes, you've obviously had them in utero. You've carried them your whole life and they've put in place perhaps some susceptibility, wiring the brain in a certain way. But those environmental factors have to impinge upon that genome. And there's a mechanism, there's a name for that mechanism by which the environment influences the expression of the genome called epigenetics. So that's really, when we say epigenetics, we're talking about how the environment actually does interact with the genes. That's right. When we talk about genetic studies or genetic disorders, we're talking about changes in the A's, C's, T's, and G's, the chemical sequence of the genome that mediates 
disease or susceptibility. Epigenetics is different. Epigenetic modifications are when the environment causes a chemical change to what's attached to the genome. So the structure, the letter sequence doesn't change, but the accessibility of your genome to make those proteins changes because of the epigenetic but modifications. That's very interesting because I never really understood exactly how the environment actually does affect you know, kind of the chemical sequences or what actually is taking place. In, in, the... in extreme circumstances, for example, nuclear radiation or extreme chemical exposure, those environmental factors can change the sequence of your genome. They can mutate your genome. But mostly the environment is, has more subtle effects. These epigenetic effects just change the chemicals that are attached to your normal DNA sequence. This is very exciting. I have so many questions for you. But I guess first, give us an overview of what are the the actual dis disorders or disease types that we're talking about when we say, when we're talking about basically neuropsychiatric diseases. What's so the spectrum? The ones that I study the most are late adolescent to early adulthood onset disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, plus early childhood onset disorders like autism spectrum disorders and ADHD. Uh, but we're also talking about things like depression, which is not a genetic disorder, but there's a genetic susceptibility. And depression also runs in families in part because of what you inherit from your parents, but also because of what you're exposed to in your environment. Things like post-traumatic stress disorder also fall under this. Even though that really is very much environmentally determined. And in fact, you cannot you have to have, have a trauma. That's correct. <laughs> you, you have to have an environmental exposure in PTSD, but there's also a genetic susceptibility of who, for example, it, that is exposed to that environmental trauma will develop PTSD versus be resilient to it. For example, we study U.S. Marines who've been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. And there are differences among a particular cohort they all are exposed to the same horrific traumas of war. Some guys come home and they're fine, and some guys come home and they have PTSD. And genes play some role in that. See, it's also interesting when you look at families within a certain, let's say if it's a dysfunctional family situation with potentially abuse or something, some children will come out without major uh, neuropsychiatric issues, and others will have you know, will be affected by that environment very adversely. So there really are basically constitutional differences or genetic differences. That's right. And this is one of the most exciting concepts now is resilience. We're studying these disorders that I mentioned, and we're starting to explain what lays out your susceptibility, the genes, the specific environments. But then there are these people who have the genetic risk, and they also have the environmental risk, they but they else. don't show the disorder. And what we think they probably have are genes that mediate resilience, hardiness, or resistance to the burden that they're carrying. So that's something new that we're doing at Upstate that almost no one else in the world is doing. It seems to me that really lies, that that's a key that could unlock a tremendous amount of, of help well, for people if there was a way to really program that or encourage that. Right. Can we foster it? resilience? And the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insel, commented on this a couple years ago to say that there's probably more to be learned about these disorders by studying people who are resilient in face of the the huge risk that they carry rather than people who actually have the disorder. We kind of buy into that. Is there also a possibility, and this is something that I've been reading about or hearing about lately when, it talk, when we talk about epigenetics, is there a possibility of changes that take place in a person being then transmitted then to the next generation. So you have this idea that person's born with a certain gene uh, array, mm -hmm. the environment affects them in a certain way and they show up with severe depressive disorder, let's say. Is it more likely than not then that they can pass that on the changes that have occurred in them well, we passed don't, on? We don't know yet if it's more likely or not, but we do know that it occurs. We used to believe that your DNA sequence gets passed on to your children, but those epigenetic modifications, those chemical modifications get wiped clean and the child starts fresh. That was dogma for many years, but then the science caught up and showed that actually there is transgenerational transmission of epigenetic modifications. So it opened up a whole new world on understanding that what people inherit is is not just the DNA sequence, it's also some of those chemical modifications. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neuropsychologist Dr. Stephen Glatt, and we're talking about the state of our knowledge about neuropsychiatric diseases. So I guess what's, what's interesting to me here is this whole notion of, of uh, evolution, the whole notion of Lamarck, 
and and versus um, Darwin and the whole idea that Lamarck way back used to say that if a giraffe stretched its neck to reach the leaves on the top of the tree, then his neck would stretch and the next generation of, of um, giraffes would have long necks, which obviously was that the environment was creating change which is completely the antithesis of what Darwin said, which is these random mutations then uh, find a more favorable environment, and those are the ones that exist. Am I correct in stating that? Yeah, so you're correct in stating both of their positions. Modern-day understanding or conceptualization of epigenetics does not entirely vindicate Lamarck. Nobody's saying Lamarck was exactly right on this point, but it is a form of molecular inheritance that Darwin did not predict. And, in fact, Lamarck was probably closer to describing. So there is some kind of a, a I don't want to say a balance between the two or a melding of the two or yeah our, we're not really sure that's well our modern conceptualization of what's heritable blends aspects of what Lamarck could not put in molecular terms didn't have the technology to understand but the fact that you could pass on things that you've acquired from the environment is is in part true but Darwin of course his his uh, principles also hold true so what are the current paths in terms of studying this I mean where are we headed? You mentioned resilience. Obviously, that's something that seems to me that has tremendous application, potential clinical mm-hmm. application. If they could identify what factors contribute to resilience and actually either program them mm-hmm. or uh, encourage them in various ways, promote them, yeah. whatever words you want to use. Is that you say you're doing that kind of work. Tell us about that briefly. Well, it's it's such an exciting time, and I'm actually really jealous of my students because they're just starting out, and they have the luxury of just working on these problems all day and not the administrative things that we uh, we work on. <laughs> at the heart. But it's really an exciting time because now we've generated more data than we almost know what to do with. It used to be a problem of extensive cost and time to generate data, and it was so prized that everybody held it close to the vest or in their silo. And now we're in an era where data is just exploding. You hear about big data, and the data sets are really too large for any one group to handle. So there's a new mentality of data sharing that when I was a student 15 years ago, 20 years ago, never could have imagined. Now everyone shares their data, and when you have more data, you can make more precise conclusions. So my students are benefiting from this. We're getting data from all over the world to put together to more accurately define these problems. So give me a sample of what the data is. Give me an example. We we primarily focus on these DNA sequence variations that are passed from family members down to their children. With neuropsychiatric with disorders. With neuropsychiatric disorders. But we're also we also need to get a handle on what's the normal biology. What's the normal brain and the normal genome look like? So we study typically developing families, but we also study families through which mental illness is passed. How do you get the sample? I mean, you're basically, are you taking DNA samples from all of these people? We are. Typically, we get a blood sample or a saliva sample. We do this right here at Upstate. Uh, in my building, we're doing a study of families right now where we're trying to get 700 families enrolled with at least one child between the age of 6 and 12, and as many children as possible. And, and this is both both normal and people who That's have right. some mental That's il- right. Illness. Typically developing or kids with any mental health concern or diagnosis. Okay. And then what do you do? You basically... So we'll take a DNA sample. We'll genotype millions of markers across an, a person's genome and find out that letter sequence. And then we'll find a, in large samples which sequences of letters co-occur or correlate with mental illness. So is that being done? I mean, basically the fact that we can we've been able to analyze the human genome really has been the key that's unlocked all of this data. That's right. We're in what's called the post-genomic era now because we have this human genome map. Now we have to make sense of it. Now we have to use that knowledge to map out disease risk. And we're actually being quite successful. Some of the large consortia where groups from all over the world are participating, hundreds of investigators, they made the right move and we're part of these consortia. Put the data together to get the best sense. And now we're starting to explain and come up with formula to say, Yes, we can account for 40% of why a person gets sick because of their DNA, but that still leaves a big portion unexplained, and that may be more complex genetic patterns, but it may also be epigenetic and environmental patterns. That's the next frontier. Yes, but assuming that you can actually identify what patterns might be um, kind of repeating Mm -hmm. in certain disease entities... Is the, is the notion then at any point that you could actually intervene either in utero or at any point 
to alter these gene sequences? And is that potentially a Pandora's box? That's right. That's the most challenging ethical question that we struggle with. And as a community, we do struggle with this. Even though we can't do that now, we struggle with issues of should you once we could. And how would you do that? Now, when my research is oriented toward identifying a person's risk and then intervening early. But I'm not talking about genome engineering or anything like that because these are not single gene disorders. So there's not one mutation you could fix. You'd have to fix literally thousands. And in fixing some, you'd be breaking some other problems. So the idea is early identification and then intervention with more typical or classical or conventional methodologies. Exactly. Very exactly. good. Well, you mentioned that you've got a study going. How can people get involved or do you, are you looking for people to get involved? We are actively enrolling for the next year and a half in this study and it's been going on for a year and a half and people are really enjoying being in the study. They can come into the lab for three hours with their family, earn $50 per family member to be in the lab to play computer games. They can just look us up on the website that'll be posted, the website address that'll be posted. We'll link, we'll link, we'll put a link to your website or the website for the study on our website, which is HealthLink on Air. Dot org and that's all one word health link on air and um, in the very few seconds the future is the future is not nature or nurture it's nature and nurture together and what part nature what part nurture and how they interact to predict who's at risk and then to intervene early and we think that's likely and a good possibility going forward in your crystal ball in my lifetime years. we will see this yeah personalized medicine will become real very exciting. Thank you so much for coming in. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Gladys, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University. Coming up next, the keys to stopping sexual violence on our campuses and beyond. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Sexual violence has reached epidemic levels on our nation's college campuses, but there is much that can be done to stop this and to eliminate the culture that condones gender-based violence. Here to tell us more are Tiffany Breck, a mentors and violence prevention educator, and Megan Greeley, a campus sexual assault prevention coordinator. They're both with Vera House, which is a comprehensive domestic and sexual violence service agency in Syracuse. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So um, let me start with you, Megan. Let's help us understand, describe the problem. I mean, what's happening on our colleges today that makes us feel like this whole problem has become an epidemic? Um, well, I think recently there's been a lot of media attention on our colleges and universities uh, to the credit of courageous survivors and student allies that are raising awareness around um, how I like to frame this as a silent epidemic. Silent because it often happens behind closed doors without witnesses and we don't usually talk about it. An epidemic because of the uh, prevalence of how often this is happening. Yeah, Tiffany, why is it why is it growing? I mean, what's your sense? Um, you know, you can, when you talk about this issue and in regards to statistics and numbers, you have two kind of viewpoints. One, you know, you can view the numbers as, as growing because maybe more people are reporting, or you can view the numbers as growing because we have a serious issue. I think it's a combination of both. Um, I think, you know, college campuses, uh, it looks and, and feels like a bigger issue because you're talking about a smaller community of people, uh, and not just people, but young people. Uh, and this idea of the culture of violence has become normal in the sense of where people are not conscious that they're, they're doing harm. Um, it's just their daily routine. And so it's a, it's a conversation that we need to have. Um, these things shouldn't be normal. This shouldn't be a part of your college experience, a part of your living experience. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's always been this stigma attached to any kind of sexual assault for the woman often. I mean, you know, that somehow she brought it on, she dressed a certain way, she she was asking for it. I mean, you know, you hear that over and over and over again when it comes to sexual assault. And and also this whole notion of this stigma of, of being afraid to come forward 
because of all of the stigma attached to that. Do you think that that has changed, Megan, in terms of people's willingness, women's willingness to come forward and to report these kinds of events? Well, I think when, as a community, we are intentional about talking about sexual assault relationship violence, we then create um, a culture where survivors and victims can feel safer um, telling their truths or asking for help. Um, and so that's why I see prevention as being so important. It's, it's not just about preventing the next act. It's about creating a culture, a community that is safe for people who have already experienced that violence so that they feel like they can ask for help and talk about their experience. Tiffany, what do you think the impact is? I mean, I, I know this has been talked about many times, but what, what, what do you think ultimately the impact on this kind of violence is on the, on the victim? Um, you know, every, every victim is different. Um, so I can't, you know, I can't give you one definitive answer. I think, you know, depending on the person, it could be, you know, uh, you're looking at kind of the acute experience, like the you know, right after, what what am I feeling? I'm feeling embarrassed, un, unsure, unsafe, self-conscious. Um, I'm questioning the choices that I made. Did I do this? Is it my fault? Uh, and then the long term, you know, if I uh, start to experience depression, how I choose to deal with depression could lead to substance abuse issues, uh, eating disorders, self-harm, isolation. Uh, you know, it's a number of problems. Um, those things are fairly common, but again, everybody's different. You know, if you think about the impact, it's that the impact on the individual doesn't just stay with them. Uh, it ends up having a community impact, which just to echo what Megan just said, which this is why prevention is so key uh, for those people who feel like, eh, I don't have a connection to this issue because I've never experienced it or I don't know anybody. Uh, you're a part of a community regardless. And on some level, this is going to come across and it's going to impact your world. Mm-hmm. How do you think that um, at this point, do you think that this notion of, well, where, where do you think alcohol or substance abuse plays a role in some of this behavior, I guess, is, is the first question I would ask either of you. I think there, there's definitely an intersection. Uh, you know, when we look at alcohol uh, and consent, uh, it's one of the topics that, that we talk about. Uh, alcohol is not a cause. It's a factor. It's very important to talk about. Uh, when you think about the messages we get uh, from media around those interactions, you know, interactions that involve alcohol and, and, and sexual behavior, they're often portrayed as very simple and easy and safe. Uh, and that's just not real. What do you mean? Uh, you know, if you, you know, when you watch TV shows or movies and there's a situation where, you know, two people meet or, or two people go out on a date and there's alcohol involved and they go home and they have sex, like everything essentially appears very simple and easy and there's not, no one's being harmed. Um, you know, some movies, you, you know, I'm thinking knocked up, you know, you have an unplanned pregnancy, but then they, it's a comedy and, and they figure a way to deal with that. Uh, so in other words, do you think in some ways that our culture has, I don't want to say turned a blind eye to the violent aspect, but in a way made this all, this whole notion of, you know, hooking up or meeting someone and having a sexual encounter, maybe even the first time you've met someone as being more normal is that is that part of what's playing a role here? Uh, you know, yes and no. So I guess when I'm uh, when I'm thinking about these the messages we get around those those interactions, not that you can't do that and have a great experience, um, or you can't do that and come out fine. You you can do those things and and you can end up being okay. I think the the danger is there's there's no kind of counter uh, visual or counter conversation being had about if you do that, there are some risks associated with that behavior, that choice. Um, you know, the, how you get consent in a one night stand is a little bit different. If you have been dating a person, you still need it. You still need to get it and give it, but how you communicate that is going to change. And I think if we have a culture of young people getting the message that it's totally cool, go out, drink, hook up, do your thing. And it's safe. Then we're doing a huge disservice to them and their experience as young people. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with sexual violence prevention educators Tiffany Breck and Megan Greeley. We're talking about their work and um, specifically about sexual violence on college campuses, but also in their work in preventing that. So let's get to this notion. Why is prevention so important, Megan? You, that seems to be your kind of ballywick here, the thing that you feel most strongly about. 
Um, prevention's important because we don't want to continue to have to think about how to provide services after the fact. We want to stop um, sexual acts or dating violence before it happens. And when we focus our efforts on prevention, we have the chance to change our culture and we have a chance to build a community where everyone feels like they have a part to play in being an agent of change in their community. So how do we go about that? In other words, we can talk about changing cultural values, but as Tiffany was just laying out, we've got the larger culture who's mm -hmm. saying to young people, you know, drink, have fun, go out, hook up, and maybe not giving them the same message that there are risks and there are times when you may not, as a young woman, want to have that kind of intimacy and yet it's being forced on you. So help us with that. What do you do to prevent it? So I think um, we have to start with talking about the myths that are out there around sexual assault and relationship violence. And, like what? Um, for instance, it's not a, a man in a ski mask hiding in your alley. Um, the majority of sexual assaults happen between people who know each other, and so there's an element of trust that that victim had for their perpetrator. Um, and that when, gets violated in some way. Yes, that gets violated in some way. And I think once we start to talk about how often this is happening, um, who are the victims, who are the perpetrators, it can become apparent to people that we all probably know somebody who's been affected in one way or another by sexual assault or relationship violence. And so it becomes something that all of us have a piece in changing and we have to have conversations around what are the messages that we received as young people about our gender, about power, about how we care for each other. How do we actually go about providing though a prevention? In other words, there was something about helping people who are bystanders in a circumstance be empowered to make mm -hmm. a difference. I heard a story that I thought was very profound about a young man in a, in a fraternity house who was seeing one of his so-called brothers helping a young woman up the stairs who was clearly extremely inebriated, and he was very concerned, and what he did was to yell, hey, dude, your car's being towed, intervened in that way, and ended up saving this young woman from that event. I mean, is that the kind of thing you would hope to encourage people to be doing? Yeah, uh, that's definitely a part of the conversation when talking about being an empowered bystander. Um, oftentimes, I think people feel intimidated by the concept of intervening. They feel that they have to intervene on such a personal level that they're uncomfortable. And there's so, a confrontation involved in that. Yeah, um, and so that's a huge deterrent for a lot of people. Um, and so the example that you just gave, uh, when I do programming with uh, high school students, I like to refer to that as the awkward turtle. Um, and it, it could be that situation like, hey dude, your, your car is being towed. Or um, you know, if you see or hear something, uh, a situation where the, the emotions, things are escalating and you want to do something but you're unsure, uh, you could walk up to that person or those people and, and ask for the time, ask for directions, right? You're going to be the awkward turtle, right? They're going to look at you like you're crazy because you just interrupted this intense altercation, moment, altercation mm -hmm. uh, and asked me for something. But what you did is you just, you distracted them and it, you de-escalated the situation in that moment. Uh, that is a part of being an empowered bystander. Um, and how do you get people to do that, I guess, is the question. How do you empower someone who's recognizing this is going on and wants to help to do that without fearing perhaps for their own safety, perhaps, or for, their, or for embarrassment? Or How do you do it, Megan? How do you get them to, to do it? Well, when we do um, presentations and training with... Um, with leaders in communities, so peer leaders in high school or leaders on a college campus, we we go through scenarios and we talk about, um, you know, what are the barriers that get in the way of, of being a bystander, and um, what are we brainstorm? What are the ideas that that you could ask or interrupt with? But I think the because so many people feel uncomfortable in that moment, that conflict moment, that's why the message really needs to be focused on how do we intervene in the little things that so we don't have to be in that confrontation so moment. Give so, me a quick example of those so little things. So a quick things. example would be um, when somebody tells uh, a man, you know, you need to man up. What does being a man mean? 
Um, You're talking about in general. In general. Those so messages. The, the rape jokes, the sexual harassment, the catcalling, the, um, the inappropriate sexual name calling, um, all of those little things that we so often walk by because we don't want to be the one that's like, that's not funny and it's not cool to to say those things. But if we can intervene in those little moments before, then we would, my idea is we would never have to have the, the time where I'm trying to think up, what do I say to this guy that's trying to walk? So you're saying his... you don't have the crisis. If you, What you're, I hear you saying is mm-hmm. we need to change the way men treat women mm-hmm. generally, or some men treat mm-hmm. women generally in this case, and, and kind of fight on every little battle versus kind of the entire, the, wait for the crisis to occur. Right. Is that what you're saying? We need to change the way that we empower men and women to be healthy and whole individuals and not fit into a small box of what it means to be a woman or be a man. What is What, what it means to be strong, what it means to be sexy. We need to get rid of those um, those those very stereotypes. small stereotypes and empower people to um, to not let those jokes, let those little things pass. Because when we do that, we change our attitudes and beliefs. Yeah, it's it's something that really goes very deep, though, because obviously sexual violence and is not limited to the college campuses. Mm-hmm. We see it in domestic violence throughout this country. I don't want to run out of time. I guess last statement. Where do you think the source, or how can we start to really make an impact on these events occurring? I think the first place to start is on the, the individual level. Um, raising people's uh, personal awareness around the issues. Again, you know, who's a victim? Who's a perpetrator? What are the red flags? What are my, what are the community resources? Just uh, increasing people's knowledge around these issues. Um, and that it's not okay. Yeah. and, and Because some people probably think... It's okay on both sides. Right. And, and, and acknowledging that by raising your awareness, by, by being an empowered bystander, by having conversations, um, by challenging a culture that normalizes violence, it's not taking the fun out of it. Um, I love my job. I have lots of fun talking about this. I still am able to live and go out and, and socialize. Um, and I feel like it's almost better because I do have this awareness. And if I see someone in need, I have the ability and knowledge to, to intervene and help them. Well, hope let's hope this message gets out there. And I think I applaud you both for the work you're doing, both on college campuses and in general with an organization like the Era House. Thanks so much for coming in. My guests have been Tiffany Breck, a Mentors in Violence Prevention Educator, and Megan Greeley, a Campus Sexual Assault Prevention Coordinator. They're both with Vera House, which is a comprehensive domestic and sexual violence service agency in Syracuse. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Next up, the importance of screening for vascular disease, an often silent killer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. About 610,000 people die of heart disease in the United States every year. That's one in every four deaths. And it's the leading cause of death for both men and women. Vascular disease represents one type of heart disease. And here with more on all of this and what you should know is Dr. Michael Costanza, Associate Professor of Surgery and the Director of Endovascular Therapy at Upstate University Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Costanza. Thanks so much for coming in. Let's begin by defining what we mean when we say vascular disease. What exactly is it? Vascular disease is just any disease that affects the blood vessels in the body. And the most common vascular disease that we see are, you know, problems with narrowing of the blood vessels as they lead to the circulation in the legs uh, most commonly. So that term that's often thrown around, it's an old term, atherosclerosis, is that kind of this whole idea of the hardening of the arteries or a change in the width 
of the the center of the arteries. So yeah, that's right. So atherosclerosis is 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 generally hardening of the arteries, and what what happens uh, when that occurs is the arteries get more narrow, so they can carry less blood flow. So it restricts the flow of blood to important organs or to important muscles, such as the muscles in your legs. And basically. What's the consequence of this then? Well, if you have a significant atherosclerosis in the blood vessels that go to the legs, then when you walk, your muscles are doing work. And the way they get energy for doing that work is the blood flow. And with atherosclerotic disease or occlusive disease, that blood flow is restricted. So you get to a certain point when you're walking where the muscles literally run out of energy and then they stop working as well. And you either get pain or cramps and have to stop walking. And it would make sense that if the muscle, if the, the arteries that go to the heart it would, is, is a muscle as well, it would have a similar effect. Right. It's the exact same thing that causes heart attacks or causes uh, people to have chest pain when they exercise. So let's talk about what the symptoms are. How would you know? You mentioned this whole idea of you know, pain, pain on walking. What other symptoms might you notice? Well, I think that's the main symptom that people come in for is um, they feel like their legs get tired out or they cramp after a certain distance of walking, and that could be a block or two or it could be several blocks if people are more active. Some people don't know they have any problems until they get checked by a doctor, and um, usually the physician can tell by doing some very easy tests in the office that there is some buildup of atherosclerotic disease. I want to talk more about the testing in a minute, but so basically what actually happens to the body? I mean, what are the kinds of blockages that we have in terms of the kinds of things that can happen? For example, if, if you have a blockage in the arteries, the carotid arteries that go to the brain, I mean, what what right. are the kind of consequences of all right. of this? So atherosclerotic disease can actually affect any blood vessel in the body, and when it affects the blood vessels in the neck or the carotid arteries, it can cause a stroke or a mini stroke uh, or what we call a warning stroke. And that what happens there is that the uh, narrowing in the arteries can cause small blood clots to form, and those blood clots can then go up into the brain and block a blood vessel in the brain. And if they block it permanently, that's a permanent stroke. If they only block it temporarily, then that's a mini stroke. And that can have, obviously, even fatal consequences. So bottom line is we're talking about that the peripheral, I mean, the arteries that feed all of these very important organs and muscle groups, basically, if they start to um, shut down or get blocked, Lots of possible consequences. Right. You know, vascular disease encompasses many things, the carotid arteries, the leg arteries, the abdominal aorta, which is the main blood vessel in the body. And all of those things can cause either uh, limb-threatening or life-threatening complications if they're not treated. So who is most at risk for this? Well, there's several risk factors. The, the number one risk factor is people that have smoked. Um, because that's one of the biggest causes of atherosclerotic disease. Uh, people that have diabetes are at risk. Um, people that are older age groups have more prevalence of vascular disease than, than younger people. And then people with high cholesterol and high blood pressure are also at risk. Did you mention obesity? Well, obesity turns out to be not as significant a risk as those other things that I mentioned. Why is smoking such an issue? Well, smoking is one of the main causes of that atherosclerotic or cholesterol buildup on the inside of the blood vessels. And just like smoking has been linked to heart disease, it's been linked to uh, blockages in vessels and other organs. And what it does is it stimulates the vessels to harden and uh, attract these cholesterol particles which build up on the inside and narrow the blood vessels. So it sounds like this one of the single most significant causes. Right. To, this, to developing this kind of thing. So how do you go about, you mentioned that it's not a difficult thing to diagnose. How is it diagnosed? Well, a lot of times uh, you can diagnose it in people with symptoms by just talking to them and, and engaging their symptoms. And so then, history. Uh, history. History is very important. And then on the physical exam, um, you know, usually we can feel people's pulses all the way down their legs. If we can't feel them with our fingers, then that usually tells you there's some uh, blockage in the blood vessels. And then in the office, we can actually do a very simple test where we actually just take the blood pressure at the ankle and compare it to the blood pressure in the arm. And those two blood pressures should be equal. And if the ankle pressure is significantly lower than the arm pressure, we know there's something going on there. Is there ever a need to do further testing, imaging type testing or blood tests or anything of that nature? 
Yeah, sometimes we do imaging testing depending on what the patient needs and what we're planning on doing to treat it. But it's not critical to make the diagnosis. Often it can be done just in the office. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with vascular surgeon Dr. Michael Costanza. We're talking about peripheral vascular disease. So basically, how is this treated? Let's go through the different ways it's treated. I mean, would lifestyle changes be sufficient in many cases? Sometimes they would be. You know, the treatment varies um, by invasiveness. The first thing that we usually tell patients is if they are smoking to stop smoking. Usually that alone relieves some of the symptoms. And then we usually recommend an exercise program as well because if you engage in a walking program where you're walking for 30 or 40 minutes every day, you can actually condition your muscles to work better on the circulation that they have. So those are two non-invasive ways of treating it. So you may not be improving the circulation per se at that point, but you can really improve the, the kind the of conditioning, conditioning of, the muscles. of the muscles. Right. Is that Would that be true even with the heart? I mean... The heart has also rehabilitation potential, and we do have you know, cardiac rehabilitation programs that people go through after heart surgery or after a heart attack, so it is a similar process. So, so basically, the biggest thing you would say is stop smoking to someone. How about losing weight? Is that important? You know, I think losing weight helps in the sense that it usually makes you more active, and it makes your muscles have to do less work in, you know, in terms of walking around, so I do think it's helpful. If someone has this diagnosis well, first of all, what are the you know average age when someone might first get this kind of a diagnosis? It's usually people uh, over the age of 60 they get it. And as they get older, the incidence of this problem goes up. So can you, if you were to make a change in your lifestyle at that point, if it's not potentially, um, well, how would you know for one thing if it were a severe amount of atherosclerosis? atherosclerosis versus a minimal amount? Well, we can usually tell, you know, based on the history in terms of how far they can walk. And sometimes, you know, people come in with very advanced cases and we actually see gangrene of the toes or uh, ulcers or sores on the feet that don't heal. And some people have pain even when they're not walking, and then we know it's very far advanced. And in that case, a lifestyle intervention might not be sufficient. Yeah, usually not enough in those cases. Usually we have to do something more invasive. So let's talk about what other things you do. What kind of medications are you using? Well, there are a couple of FDA-approved medications that do improve the blood flow through smaller vessels that go around these blockages, and that can help people walk further. Um, they don't take care of the blockages themselves, but they can improve the symptoms of the blockages. And so then, after, let's assume you've done both those things, and yet, why would you move to something like surgery? Well, for some people, the quality of life is so limited based on not being able to walk as far as they want that they want something more done. And then other people are really in a limb-threatening position if they have gangrene. If we don't do anything for those, they're likely to lose their leg, and so we have to intervene. But in addition to the peripheral uh, aspects of this in terms of affecting the leg muscles, I mean, if you don't intervene, are you also potentially at higher risk for things like stroke or heart attack, that kind of thing as well? Yeah, that's a good question. If you identify somebody with peripheral arterial disease, you really have identified somebody with the same risk of a heart attack as someone who's had a previous heart attack because they are so closely associated. So it's the same process that affects the heart can affect the legs. And so you really ha you're right, you really have to modify their lifestyle for their heart's sake as well. But in terms of the aggressiveness of your therapy, would you be more aggressive, you know, knowing that somebody has that kind of involvement in terms of both lifestyle modification but also perhaps medication and maybe I guess the point is when do you turn to surgery? Right. We usually reserve surgery um, for people that are really in a limb-threatening position. I see. But we do have something that's a little short of surgery called you know, endovascular interventions where we're using balloons or stents in a minimally invasive way to try to improve the circulation. So in that group of patients that aren't quite in a limb-threatening situation but want to walk further um, and haven't responded to medication or lifestyle, then we would consider them for you know, an arteriogram and possible balloon angioplasty, just like we do on the heart. Do these things, these interventions, actually, are they protective for the, in other words, if you make sufficient lifestyle intervention and you take the right kinds of medications, are you actually changing the potential course for any kind of life-threatening oh, uh, complications absolutely. that could occur? Right. If you make the lifestyle changes 
um, you definitely are lengthening your lifespan and improving your quality of life because your symptoms will definitely improve as well. So it sounds like the med in terms of the surgical intervention, those are more for immediate kind of concerns, but in terms of really changing the course of all the complications that can come from peripheral vascular disease, the, li the lifestyle and the medication changes are more potentially long long-lasting or have right. a bigger bang for your buck. Right, so and that's why I think it's so important for people that even don't have significant symptoms to be at least have the diagnosis because then they know they really do have to make lifestyle changes in order to, you know, improve their lifespan. What about prevention? I mean, what would you say to your, what do you say to your patients in terms of either prevention of further problems or even prevention at the, at the go? Right. I think the number one thing is to, if you're not smoking, don't start. And if you are smoking, to stop smoking. If you could do nothing else, that would be the most important thing. And then the other things go along with a healthy diet and regular exercise and controlling your blood pressure. And if you have diabetes, controlling your sugars. So what do you think the prognosis is then? Somebody around age 60 or 65 gets diagnosed with this, and it's, it's of moderate concern. If the person does make these changes, would it, you said it, they can really live a, a full life. Right. It's an excellent prognosis, certainly from the leg perspective. If you do make those changes, you really almost eliminate the possibility of getting into a limb-threatening position, and you will definitely improve your heart health, which will translate into a longer lifespan. So what about screening? I mean, is, is it important, and, and how should we be going about? Because I think you indicated it's almost a silent Unless you have real cramping or pain or limitation when you're walking, you might not know that you're developing right. this problem. Right. I think screening is important. Certainly there are groups of patients that are in those high-risk categories where a screening, which could just involve someone you know, checking their pulses in the office or doing that test with the blood pressure on the ankle, um, could easily diagnose this, and then you know that patient could be aware of the need for you know making those changes we talked about. So basically, things like avoiding smoking, if you're diabetic, controlling your diabetes, your blood sugar, um, making sure exercise is something you do. I mean, what would you say? 30 minutes, three times a week, kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's fine. And then making sure that your cholesterol is under control, um, healthy diet, and keeping your weight down, all those things really together really can be protective. Right. It's the same, you know, issues in terms of living a cardiac healthy lifestyle as well. They, they are very overlapping diseases. So the same things that would be good for your heart would be good for this problem as well. And when you just very briefly, when you do the kinds of interventions you were talking about, the kind of um, endovascular kinds of things that you do, Basically, they can solve the immediate problem, right. but it's really the lifestyle changes. Right. If we you know, open up an artery and get the blood flow going and the patient continues to smoke, continues to leave an unhealthy lifestyle, that artery will close back up within a matter of a year, um, if not sooner. So if they don't make the lifestyle changes, then you know, doing that is just a very short-term solution. Thank you so much for coming in. This is very interesting and something I think many people don't really understand. So I appreciate all of your information. My guest has been Dr. Michael Costanza. He is Associate Professor of Surgery and the Director of Endovascular Therapy at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Today I've brought two poems by mothers. They are both poets in their own right, but this time they've chosen to write poetry about their daughters. Uh, these are not happy poems necessarily, but they speak beautifully to the power of poetry and its ability to transcend sadness. The first poem is by uh, a poet laureate from Tompkins County here in central New York, Catherine Howd Macon. This is a poem she wrote for her daughter when her daughter was addicted. It's called Snow. Snow falls outside my safe brown home and I am weeping. I am crying. This house holds two black striped cats, but God is a distant palace of whim allowing my daughter to long for a drug that turns her into thin gray smoke, vague lips that lie for survival. Crystals, 
They're blowing now, swift and silver, and silent as hope only a mother can ask to find when the body she's birthed and loves finds heroin is more important than giving to the wider world calling out her name. Snow, beautiful and bright and pure, pours down from a street-lit night here where I dare write a poem, praying that the girl I bore is able to look out through a window and wonder at winter sky. And I'm happy to report that poem has a very happy ending for Catherine and her daughter. The next poem is by a writer from California. This is to her daughter, uh, who was very ill in the hospital. It's called Things My Daughter Lost in Hospitals by Tony L. Wilkes. One million twenty-seven strands of hair, a smooth scalp, several inches of frontal bone, a Tiffany bracelet, 39 liters of urine, the call button, her patience, a pear-shaped gallbladder, her husband's patience, eight pints of blood, numerous stainless steel staples, her job, one decaliter of cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid, two blue and white hospital gowns, her pink sweater, the ability to have more children, 22 pieces of big red chewing gum, 41 days of consciousness, names of night nurses, names of day nurses, six actique lollipops, seven neurosurgeons, 218 sutures, her daughter's sixth birthday, the desire for sex, three yellow bedpans, her blood-brain barrier, five years. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we review the key steps to ensuring better bone health and we get an in-depth look at pancreatic disease. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or you can follow us on Twitter or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.